Any views and opinions expressed are those of the authors and or participants and do not necessarily reflect the views, policy, or position of the Gastroenterology Learning Network or HMP Global, its employees, and affiliates. Welcome to IBD Drive Time. My name is David Rubin. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago, and I have a secondary appointment in the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics, which is of particular relevance to the topic we'll be covering today. Today, I'm joined by two world-renowned experts in IBD, and we're going to be discussing the ethics of clinical trials in IBD. I'm really excited that joining me are both Professor Severine Vermeer and Professor Dan Turner. Severine Vermeer obtained her MD degree at the Catholic University at Leuven, Belgium in 1995, and then her PhD subsequently, and she's currently a full professor there. She's known throughout the world for her research and leading efforts in clinical trials and bringing new therapies to the field of inflammatory bowel disease, but also in studies that have led to better understanding of the mechanisms of inflammatory bowel disease. And I'm really delighted that she's here today for this topic with us. Hi, Severine, how are you? Hello, David, I'm fine, thank you. And thank you for having me for this interesting podcast. You bet. Uh, my second guest is uh, Professor Dan Turner. Dan is a professor of pediatrics at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and holds a PhD in clinical epidemiology from the University of Toronto. He's been the head of the Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition Unit at the Charit Zedek Medical Center in Jerusalem since 2008, and is the director of the Pediatric IBD Center and Research Unit there. He's also co-chaired the European Crohn's and Colitis Organization and European Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition Guidelines for the Treatment of Children with IBD. So you can see that uh, Dan is a perfect guest uh, to be joining Severine and me to talk about this topic. Hi, Dan. How are you? Hi. Good evening. Good afternoon. Well, I'm delighted that both of you are here, and we have had our group and individual conversations about clinical trials in IBD and how we can get new therapies to the patients who need them. I thought I would start with just a general question so we get everyone on the same page. What are the current challenges to recruiting patients into the clinical trials of IBD? And maybe Severine, you can start us off there. I see a few challenges, David. Certainly in our center, which is a referral center, it becomes increasingly difficult to find or identify patients that have not been exposed to too many treatment options, or in other words, that have not become too refractory. That's certainly one challenge. And then, of course, the challenge that always remains um, with trials and randomizing patients is the fact that there is placebo um, um, as part of the, the trial, at least in the beginning. Yeah, and we've had some problems. Uh, the numbers quoted have been as, as low as 0.1 adult patient per site per month getting enrolled into some of these pivotal trials. So you can do the math in a, in a study of 700 or 800 patients, how many sites you might need and how long it can take to actually enroll successfully. Dan, what are the other challenges that you might add to the list? So placebo for sure, but I think the harsh eligibility criteria in general is a, um, is a big problem, especially in uh, children, but generally, and I would name two in particular, 
One is a long washout period from previous uh, biologics. So if you need to have eight weeks since the previous biologic and the patient needs to stay in a moderate to severe uh, status, otherwise he's not eligible for screening, then if you have valid alternatives outside the trial, so uh, very few patients will uh, choose this, this path. And the other criteria, which is problematic on the same page, is the long screening period. So once you screen, once they finish this, the washout period and you start screening and you wait three, another three weeks or four weeks until everything comes back from the central lab and the cell to reading and until until this happens, many patients just drop out, drop out and they just require uh, treatments outside, outside the trial. Yeah. So on the one hand, it's nice that we have some newer options and many options for some of our patients to consider treatment for their Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. On the other hand, uh, we recognize that those options are often being preferred over exploring new treatments. And especially when patients have to be screened so rigorously or when inclusion criteria are too strict. Uh, so what's the whole purpose of placebo? Uh, Severine, what are the benefits of having placebo arms in clinical trials, maybe more historically than currently, but can you just briefly mention why the FDA yes. or the EMA have favored placebo? Yes, sure. Of course, we know that placebo provides a greater scientific reliability of the results of your trial. Um, so from a methodological Point of view, there certainly is an advantage of having uh, placebo in the trial. The potential efficacy, I think, of a drug can really be observed without exposing too many patients to a potentially new treatment. And this is the big advantage, I think, over non-inferiority trials. The need for a lower sample size to really show or demonstrate a, um, an effect so I think that's an important point. The concept of non-inferiority is something we don't talk a lot about, but in general, you need a much larger sample size to show that two treatments are not inferior to one another, or another way to say that is that neither is superior to the other than, than when you have a placebo arm. On the other hand, it raises the question of clinical equipoise or whether there's an equal likelihood in the investigator's mind that the patient may or may not respond to either arm of the trial. So Dan, how do you approach the question of clinical equipoise when there's placebo, or maybe you don't think there is any longer? Personally, I don't think, I don't think there is anymore. We managed to ditch placebo in pediatric trials a few years before when you, we united all pediatric organizations and members in a global campaign. We discussed this with the EMA and the FDA. We uh, wrote position papers. Uh, we voted more than 100 voting members of five uh, organizations globally with a consensus of 93% that placebo should not be used in pediatric trials. There was one trial from uh, adalimumab in ulcerative colitis that that was the first one with placebo and none of us enrolled patients to it. And after two or three years, they had like 17 patients in that trial. And I think that's when the FDA understood that there is a problem. And since then, placebo is not part of any pediatric IBD trials. If you ask me, I don't think this should be part of adult trials as well. I'm saying this with all the modesty needed because I'm a pediatrician. And 
some cynical adult IBD tell me, uh, you know, it's nice for you because you rely on historical or external placebo rates from adult trials. And if you ban that from adult trial, also the pediatric population will be uh, hurt by this decision. I have something to respond to that, but maybe Severine will be more adequate to to address that. Well, of course, I know you're not referring to Severine or me as the cynical adult investigators. But Severine, <laughs> what do you think about this in adults? Um, what's the potential harm of placebo in the modern world of enrolling patients in our trials with IBD? I do believe that there is potential harm um, of still having placebo because what happens, in my opinion, is that we are really driving the steroids uh, up and a longer uh, use of steroids because patients know that they have a chance of ending up receiving no drug, the placebo, and they really know that they need to reach that primary endpoint, which is often placed at um, something like week 10, week 12, or sometimes even later. So patients really want to make sure that they reach that endpoint, and so they will take steroids or ask for steroids. And so most of the trials also demand that then the steroids are being continued uh, or kept stable during the entire induction period. So I really think it is dangerous to keep patients on non-active drugs or placebo. It drives steroid use. It, that will also increase safety events as well. And we have seen in some trials in Crohn's disease, for instance, some perforations that were not linked to the drug, but were linked to ongoing active inflammation. So I really believe, whereas the Declaration of Helsinki allows the use of placebo when there is no alternative, uh, I think nowadays, as also Dan said, we have multiple other options available that the use of placebo, in my opinion, is no longer justified. So I really hope that also the adult IBD field will follow the pediatric field. Well, as you see, as you see the pediatric yeah. folks got organized and they voted with their feet. Um, and I, I do agree with you. I, I think when you consider not just the harm of being on placebo and progression of an active moderate to severe disease, but also what you just mentioned, which is concomitant steroid use and the ad adverse events that go along with that. The other point of it is it defeats the whole point of what the regulatory agencies and pharmaceutical companies have tried to say, which is if we use placebo, we can study fewer patients and get the drug through the process faster. In fact, as you know, Severine, you and I together are part of a steering committee that just analyzed a phase three trial that didn't meet its statistical primary endpoint because the placebo rate was too high. And maybe it was because the those patients needed more steroids. So it's a big deal. IBD Drive Time is sponsored by the Gastroenterology Learning Network and Advances in IBD. Don't forget that the Advances in IBD meeting is coming up this December, 2023 in Orlando, Florida. You can find the podcasts of the IBD Drive Time on Apple and Spotify. Just search for the Gastroenterology Learning Network to find us. I'm back now with Professor Severine Vermeer and Professor Dan Turner, and we're talking about some of the ethical challenges of clinical trials in IBD. So, Dan, you taught us that the pediatric community got organized to 
argue the case against placebo arms in trials for children with inflammatory bowel disease. What were the potential solutions that were proposed and how are you doing trials now? The first intuitive solution was to use uh, external placebo rates. And that has been used from adult trials because there are not enough uh, placebo uh, trials in uh, children to use historical placebo rates. But now with dozens of RCTs in adults using placebo, uh, and placebo didn't change with time, more or less, you can have a meta-analysis of placebo rates in uh, in the various RCT and adjusting for the baseline characteristic of the enrolled patients. And then you can have a more or less a fixed rate of that specific population you have with disease duration and the mixture of severity of the patient. That was the, the first solution. Uh, the second solution, which is now materializing, is platform designs. And uh, platform designs need to be adopted from cancer management. What my, my response to people say, you have to have placebo, otherwise you don't have a very solid benchmark. I said, well, we're introducing all the time new chemistry, chem, uh, chemo, chemotherapy and biologics to cancer, and there is no placebo in cancer management. There, there is something to learn from this field. And there is the first trial in pediatrics with the platform design uh, with IL-23 blockers is about to be launched these uh, weeks. And the platform design says that you, you use Bayesian statistics and one patient comes in and you assess the likelihood of this patient to respond comparing to the different medication there is in the platform. So you have the same protocol, the same uh, centers, just different medications. So that also shortens the time to engage centers into the trial. And you learn the rate of the new patient compared to all other treatments to that uh, platform. And in cancer, and it could be the same in IBD as, uh, as well, you, you enter the biomarker of your cancer, and then the platform will select the right intervention for your biomarker. And we are, we are starting to enter that, uh, uh, that phase as well uh, for IBD. And then once the, the Bayesian statistics identify that the new intervention is futile, it will say, okay, we have to stop. It could be after 20 patients, 30 patients, 40 patients, no placebo. Or when it is convinced that it is actually not futile, it will exit the uh, platform and then you can uh, continue with the phase three uh, confirmatory uh, trial. And this is already materializing in pediatric because of our rebellion campaign and the, the first uh, trial is going to start soon. That's great, Dan. Thank you for explaining that so well. And obviously we would love to have more uh, validated or at least possible therapeutic biomarkers to guide inclusion. We, we've seen a little bit of that in the phase two trials with TL1A inhibitors, and perhaps we're going to see more of those coming, which would obviously help us understand who might be the better candidates for certain mechanisms. Severine, can you add, what do you think are some of the creative solutions we can have to limiting placebo exposure in trials? I think we simply also need to think more of having active comparator trials before really approval. Now we're having those after the drug is approved, but we really need, we don't need any me too drugs, right? We need drugs that are significantly better 
and having a better efficacy and safety to the options that we use daily. And now with having at least five different MOAs that um, we have been, we have really been um, familiar with, I think new drugs should just explore the efficacy and their safety against some of these other, these five MOAs that have become our standards now. So um, uh, I see well that anti-TNFs or vidolizumab or perhaps eustachinumab uh, and IL-23 may become the standards and we are comparing against these standards and new drugs need to show that they are at least, I would say, and then it comes to what is at least, is it 10, 15%, 20% better and as safe or safer. So they need to show an added value. We really need to step away from having a sixth MOA with a similar efficacy and a similar safety. Yeah, I do agree with you. And there's a lot we can learn from the cancer experience. Uh, one is, of course, that they protocolize most patients and they're organized in that regard. And some say, well, that's because they can do molecular tumor and tissue typing. But honestly, they started doing that way before they had those markers. And those came because they were organized and protocolized. And I think it would be a big lift, but it's certainly something in IBD we should be exploring more actively. The other, of course, when you talk to patients is both a therapeutic misconception of what we're trying to do in trials, as well as the aversion to having too many interventional procedures like colonoscopies and the advent of things like intestinal ultrasound as endpoints or other surrogate and appropriate markers, I think can make trials more uh, acceptable to patients and successful for all of us. So that gets me to my last point for today which is to ask both of you, um, how do you talk to patients about participation in a clinical trial? What do you tell them? Uh, perhaps Severine, you can start. And then Dan, you can tell us how you do it, talking to parents and patients. Yeah, it's a very difficult one, really. And uh, certainly the placebo aspect is, is difficult to explain to patients. We try to engage patients early on in participating into trials and not wait until they have really exhausted all of the therapeutic options, because then of course, when nothing else is available, it's easier to perhaps accept a trial with a new drug, uh, including placebo. Um, but it's not, it's not very easy and it requires a kind of altruism, I would say. Uh, and I also tell patients that the drugs that perhaps they are receiving now were approved on the market thanks to other patients that were in a similar scenario and have uh, really accepted to take part of the trials. And because we had those pioneer patients and the drug is now on the market and has benefited perhaps the patient who's sitting in front of you. So if each patient can perhaps be a little ambassador for a next patient and have, and, and if we can uh, yeah, create that kind of altruism for the community of patients, uh, this, this helps. So this is what we are trying to do. Get them really involved in the bigger research we are doing. And that includes, of course, basic and translational research, but also the clinical uh, research. And then you are sometimes surprised about the generosity and, and the willingness of patients to um, really contribute to science and, and making making the, the scientific field a progress. Yeah, I agree completely. In general, in my clinic uh, and over my 
career, I've found that patients want to participate or want to help. It's the challenge of participating in an inter interventional therapeutic trial, certainly in the U.S. and in a tertiary center, as we've discussed, that, that brings us new problems to address. And I do discuss with patients the option to pull out of the trial at any time, that they can get open-label drug, that maybe there's a four-to-one randomization scheme where they're less likely to get placebo, but it keeps coming up as a challenge for us. And we're now looking at what those harms are across all our trials so we can quantify this. Dan, do you have any tips and pointers about how you do this? Now you don't have to talk so much about placebo, but how do you get parents and children on board for clinical trials? So in, with parents, it's more difficult because the altruism that Saverin you talked about is, uh, is, the, is the basis for any enrollment in clinical trials. But by law and by ethical rules, parents cannot be altruistic on behalf of their children. They have to make decision for the benefit of that specific child. And this is a controversy. After the age of 18, you can decide to compromise with your health, uh, for, with your health to, to help other people. A parent cannot do that uh, for, for, for their children. Otherwise, um, is uh, violating the basic rules of being a parent. So every trial that is being initiated in pediatrics needs to have an added benefit for the patient and for the child. And it's often it's easy to achieve that if we think that the trial needs to mimic the way the patient's actually being managed in the clinical practice. Uh, sometimes they have a early escape to combining biologics, maybe think that they cannot have access as part of clinical practice, uh, no placebo, shorter screening period, easier uh, access to drug levels or other things that may be more difficult to achieve. And if we think about it like that, and you say, okay, this is a trial that I would be happy to, or I will be favorably considering to enroll my child into that uh, trial, and then it's easier to, to uh, reflect that to the parents themselves. This has been such a good conversation, and I knew I had the right guests when I invited both of you to talk about it. Obviously, there's still a lot of unmet needs in IBD, and so we need to move forward in a thoughtful way to engage our patients and enroll folks in clinical trials so that we can do better for our patients and do better for the field. And so I think that this conversation and others that we're having now uh, should move the field forward, and I look forward to working with both of you to advocate for improvements in the way we do these things. I want to specifically thank my guests, uh, Professor Severine Vermeer, who's with us from the Catholic uh, University in Leuven, Belgium, uh, and a world expert in the clinical trial space, and Professor Dan Turner, who's at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and uh, equally uh, expert uh, specifically in the pediatric IBD space, but has influenced our field on the adult side very much, as you've heard today. Thank you both for being here with me and for all you do for our patients. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. This has been IBD Drive Time. I really enjoyed it, and I hope that you'll join us for the next episode. Take care. Take care.